Hi, my name is Kathy, and I'm a grateful member of Elliman. If your chairs are like mine, I feel real fortunate that I made it up out of the chair. We thought it was our chair when we looked around. Everybody's on an angle. Have you noticed? This is just wonderful to be here. Uh, I couldn't be more thrilled to have been invited to a place like this. You're a beautiful group. Uh, aren't you? Did you notice that yourself? Yeah. Um, I never... I never understand it, but I'll take it. <laughs> Whenever I get these wonderful gifts from Al-Anon. When all I really did was just go to a bunch of meetings and uh, keep my mouth shut, that's what they tell me to do, and um, do a lot of lot like what Louise was asked to do a few minutes ago, be asked to serve when I wasn't ready to. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? She read. Anyway. Um, I'm not a real... Um, I don't have a real bizarre story to tell you. I'm just here to tell you my story. Uh, I'm kind of a generic Al-Anon. Uh, I used to say that it wasn't boring. But, you know, and I've heard some stories since then. I think it was kind of boring, actually. I, I've heard lots more excitement than I got. Um, I've got a lot of people in my life who consumed strange substances. The um, the people that come to mind today are uh, that were alcoholic probably were my grandfather and my mother and I married one of course we have five children and certainly at least three of them are alcoholics and if they're not sober they're in training probably a few more than three and I have alcoholic relatives my favorite aunt was an alcoholic of course and. Um, all of my husband's family were alcoholics. And I, um, I, I'm in Al-Anon. Um, when I came into Al-Anon, that's all it was. And I didn't know I could be a lot of different other things. Didn't have uh, anything to do except just come to Al-Anon. That's why I call myself a generic Al-Anon. And I came in with all those people in my life using and abusing weird things. And they did a lot of drinking and they took a lot of pills and they sniffed some funny stuff. And they shot some things in their arms, and they smoked funny cigarettes, and they took strange pills that did weird things. And uh, I still belong in Al-Anon. I found over the years that it still serves everything I need, because the answer is always the same. What do I do about myself? Um, I feel real at home. We landed in the Fresno airport yesterday, and we're pit- we picked up a fellow we hadn't met before. His name's Charlie. I don't know if Charlie's here. He's not a member of Al-Anon. I'm not sure he's willing to drop in on one of our meetings. Uh, oh, he's here. God, hi, Charlie. He's sitting behind me, too. i got to be careful. I love talking to um, rooms where there are some members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Are there some members of Alcoholics Anonymous here? I would like to thank you for your generosity in sharing in sharing your program with us because you were certainly generous in sharing your disease. And I'll tell you, if I had any idea how much fun I was going to be having as a result of that man's drinking, I sure would have enjoyed it a lot more than I did. One of the things I did while trying to control my husband's drinking was um, tried, I, I had realized at some point that I couldn't control that very well so I tried desperately to control something and I would I was reminded of it coming up here with Charlie because what I would do was Clint was uh, when he was drinking and well since then too to tell you the truth he gets a little absorbed with his little aches and pains um, some of you like to call that by name you know like hypochondriacs and things but I'll just say he gets real absorbed in his aches and things. So I would try to control where he was going to be sick next. And you can do that if you want. You know. And I would, like, he'd leave the house in the morning, and, I, and just before he'd leave, I'd say, <clears throat> a little, I have a little sore throat. And then I'd make a bet with myself that when he came home from work, he'd have a sore throat. And if I won, I'd put a dollar in a jar. And then when I had enough dollars, I'd go do something fun, and I felt like I was controlling something. And I could give him a backache and a shoulder ache, and I could give him a stomach ache. 
One time he had a twitch in his eye for three days. He never did know how that didn't work too well with the female trouble, but. <laughs> and I used to con- try to control something um, because he felt that he deserved, because he worked so hard, that he deserved to eat the finest steaks in town. Now, we had five children, and he was a school teacher, and there wasn't a lot of money. And uh, I couldn't afford to go to Maury's Market and get him the finest steaks, but he insisted that he deserved that. So I would go to Maury's Market once and save the butcher paper. Then I'd go to the cheapest store in town and buy steaks, wrap them in, right, stick them in the refrigerator. He'd come home, check to make sure he was going to get what he deserved. He said, good, you've got me a steak for Maury's. And of course, by the time he ate his steak, he never knew what he was eating anyway. But, and I would just stand there and I felt wonderful. Just wonderful. I said, this is the best. This guy's got the best steaks in town. And I just say, you're right, he does, you know. So I could control that. And the reason I got reminded of that was because coming up here, I was sitting in the front seat with Charlie and three other people in the back. One was my husband and two were Garth and Evelyn. We heard from Garth last night. We met them in Minnesota one time. And, of course, we're all just chatting and catching up on things. And they were in the back seat because I told them I got car sick if I sat in the back seat. And uh, so I'm going to flip him to Kersick, you know, he's quit doing that. But I'm, so I'm sitting with Charlie, and, um, and I have a little dry throat, so I reached in to take out a cough drop, and he says, what's that you're taking? The Alamance here ears are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And I said, it's, it's a cough drop, and, and he, uh, you want one? He says, do I have a cough? <laughs> <laughs> I just loved it. I felt right at home. So a little bit later, I had a little heartburn. So I pulled out something and he says, what's that? And I says, we have heartburn, Charlie. <laughs> that's Charlie. Is he an alcoholic? I mean, that's wonderful. He says, if it's, you know, whatever I've got, and I, I realized how often at home I used to hide anything I had. No matter what it was, you know, because if, if he found it, doesn't matter what, what it was, if I was interested in it, he was going to use it all up. And uh, so I really feel at home. I love alcoholics. I especially love alcoholic women. I think my mom was an alcoholic woman. A wonderful lady. I don't identify with alcoholics a lot. I, I kind of walk around with feelings of impending joy. <laughs> Which really gets them mad, I'll tell you. And I decided a long time ago, at, I, I see you didn't happen to read something today from our literature called The Do's and the Don'ts. But some meetings do that, and there's a list of do's and don'ts. Maybe I shouldn't tell alcoholics that. They might get them out and read them and tell us when we're not doing our do's and don'ts. But it's just kind of a nice, simple little list of things to do or don't do if you're trying to exist with an alcoholic in your life. And I had decided they should add a don't to it. And it should be, don't try to cheer up an alcoholic. Because that's, you see, the story of my life was trying to cheer up anybody who wasn't happy. Because I was. I thought, and uh, if I was, you ought to be. I had to learn the hard way to go ahead and let somebody be angry if that's what they were going to do. It isn't easy for me still today, but at least I can keep my mouth shut, which is one of the wonderful pearls of wisdom you told me when I first got here. I was expecting something a great deal more spiritual than that when I got here. And that's what I got. I remember a time when I rode to Los Angeles from Oceanside. Now, that's, Oceanside is just north of San Diego. To get to Los Angeles, it's about 100 miles. And I was in a car full of AA members, all men. And one of the members of the group was going to go talk at a meeting. And we got stuck in L.A. traffic. And if you've been there, you sit there. You just sit there. Well, there were four or five alcoholics in that car who were not going to settle for that. Now, I don't know what they thought they were doing, sprout wings. You know, you can't do much else. And they grumbled and complained and grumbled and complained, and, and I was still not too recovered at that point. So I took it upon myself to cheer them up. So I said to them all, there was Stephen and his sponsor, too, whose name is Bill Blake, and he's a grouch. And I think he probably was driving, and I said to them all, let's just consider this a gift of time. So if there's any new elements here, I don't suggest you try it. I mean, I'm lucky I got out of the L.A. freeway alive. So, my biggest, one of my biggest lessons in Illinois has been to let you be mad if that's what you want to be. 
But I learned here once I don't have to stick around if you get too mad. I can go out and do something else. Um, somebody said if the bluebird of happiness is, I'll say, well, I said it's nice. How can you say that? Hooping on your uh, on your head, you can always move over. You know. And so that sort of works for me is to say, well, if he wants to do that, I can stand over here while he does that or she does that. Um, there are quite a few people on this program from Lost Status. Actually, I know some of them. And um, I got the biggest kiss out of that when we got that in the mail because uh, probably of all, all those three figures, I'll bet, I don't know for sure, four, actually, um, I'm probably the only native Lost Get in here. I was born there. And I was born there when there were only 2,000 people in that little town, and um, that's just southeast of San Francisco, and it was a wonderful place to grow up, and I had a really nice dad and a really nice mom, and I had an older sister who didn't like me, so I didn't think she was so nice, um, and a nice grandmother and a bunch of neighbors and a bunch of friends in that town, and everybody liked me as far as I knew, and uh, I just grew up real safe and secure. It was a great place to be. My family were involved in the civic activities, and my grandparents had been, and, and I had a real tie to that town. Now, my mother drank too much. She, I don't think, drank too much when I was real young. I don't remember it, but she did. It wasn't a problem to me. So I have only to go by what I can remember. Um, I have discovered some signs, maybe, that there was... I had some idea what was going on, though, because I went through a lot of my old papers a while back and came across a poem I had written. And it was in the third grade. So I could tell how old it was and I and it was a Mother's Day poem to my mom and it said a lot of pretty things and at the end it said and so I love you mother dear even though you like the deer <laughs> pretty bad poetry but uh, isn't that an interesting sentiment for me to be saying it and you know when I read that as an Al-Anon I saw that I had released her with love and boy I sure wish I could have remembered how to do that a few years later I, mom's drinking was a problem to me when I got into high school and I was an active person in my high school and busy with a lot of things. And I remember um, being, doing, putting on a show or something. And, and Dad and Mom came to see it. They always came to see my thing. And they came backstage. And Mom was drunk. Drunk. And I was so mad at my father for bringing her there for not stopping her from coming. And those chickens were to come home to roost because the children used to get mad at me when their father would get drunk. And if they didn't get mad at me when he got drunk, they would get mad at me because he got so ornery. And they would say to me, Mom, why don't you just keep your mouth shut when he comes home? Uh, Out of the mouths of children. They knew exactly what they were talking about. And they were right. There was time after time after time the scenes in our home would have been a great deal different if I had kept my mouth shut. And they were mad at me. But I remember my mom's drinking that way. She was periodic. I didn't know what to call it then. Um, my mom and I got along beautifully. I went away in a San Jose state, which is all 10 miles. Big deal. Back in 1946 when the war ended. The big war. The WW2, for those of you who are old enough to know that. And so, oh, just in case you're one of those people who sits out there trying to figure out how old I am, I just turned 60. Can we get that over with? Mm-hmm. I don't want you to listen to me. I don't want you to be counting at how old I am. I just see I do that. That's why I know. You know. And it was a wonderful time to go to college because all the GIs were coming out of the service. And they were, gosh, they were experienced war heroes. I mean, that's what they told me. And up to then, nobody really lied to me. So I, as far as I knew, everybody told me the truth. I was glad to get out of the house. Mom's drinking was bad. She was, uh, probably she'd go a month or two without drinking, then she'd drink badly for a while, and it was really bad. My dad was terribly depressed. A complete state of depression. I remember him as a depressed person. I mean, that's my memory of my father. My sister had married and moved out, and my grandmother, the other support person in my life, had had a series of strokes and wasn't really there for me either. So when I started college, with absolutely no money, because we were poor, um, working, there weren't any uh, student loans in those days, and um, going to school. I'd always been a good student in high school, and um, and I moved into San Jose as fast as I could, and I started having fun. I mean, fun. I mean, that's fun. I've been dating those kind of 
immature high school boys. I mean, these men have come out of the war. They've been defending my life. And I've been raised to be patriotic. And uh, most, most of us from my generation remember that. We were raised to be patriotic. I was also raised with enough of the Depression period, because I was born in 28, to remember the thinking that went with that. I remember we had very little. My dad pretty much always worked, but we, we often had very little. And someone would come to our door and want to, to work in the yard or something for a meal. And I know that what I learned from all of that was that if you have something, you give it away. If somebody needs it. And I learned that what goes around comes around, an expression we use a lot in these programs. I learned that a lot from my grandmother and my mother, that you, you don't question whether you get back for what you give. You just give and you trust that it'll come back to you somehow. Those are all wonderful, wonderful little um, bromides that I grew up with. But I believed in that. I believed in giving away. I believed in the sharing of things. I believed that, to, that you trust people. And uh, I also was supposed to be patriotic. So um, here were all these guys, and here I was, and I, and I also had learned how to pretend pretty well. Because one of the things my mother was terrifically talented, she was a very talented writer. Well, I was nice in that way, but she also used that imagination in some kind of weird spots. And I grew up, I think, sometimes wondering what was real and what wasn't. But it was always fun, because she's such a funny lady. We laughed so much. And I can remember now that in her efforts to make me feel okay about myself at times, she would give me ways to deal with things that were really just pretending. And one of them was that I, I was really a skinny kid. I'd been very sick. I had rheumatic fever. And in those days, they didn't have penicillin. And it was very frightening for my family. And I would get recurrences of that. And it was a real uh, difficult experience. And I was really, really skinny. And it was not, I didn't like that. It made me different from the other kids. And I also couldn't play as much because they all thought they had to protect my heart, which I guess had been damaged a bit. But what I'm saying in all that is that I was, that was a big unhappiness in my life that, well, that I walked with every day. And, um, she would say, I would come home crying maybe because some kids would tease me. And she would say, you're not skinny at all. Well, that wasn't true. And I know what she was doing. She was trying to help me be okay. But it wasn't true. And that's just one little example. That was the way mom dealt with life. You just pretended like it wasn't really true. Well, you know, I didn't realize how that was going to set me up for picking out a crazy alcoholic that did some weird and bizarre things. Then I could just say, oh, that's not really true. It's kind of sick when you get to doing it at that point. One of the things I pretended to be was something I wasn't, and so I joined a sorority. I didn't have the money to join a sorority. I wanted to have all the fun that went with that. I wanted the other stuff that went with that, but I didn't have the money for that, and I did it anyway, which meant I had to work more hours, which meant I couldn't study all those hours, and I had to go to the party. I mean, after all, I owed it to all those guys. And and I just had a blast at San Jose State. The thing is, I had such a good time that after three and a half years, I flunked out. Now, I flunked out real, in a big way. I didn't fool around. Um, I'd been kind of poking away at it for several years. Uh, I would, my grades would go down because I could go into class. I figured I'd been smart. I could, I could scoot by. And then I'd study somebody else's notes just before the test. And, and it, of course, it caught up with me. Um, on and off over the three years, the school used to call me in and say, you have to improve your grades. We're going to kick you out. And so I would. I could spend one quarter getting straight A's if that's what they wanted. And I could do that. But then I, only, I knew I was only going to do it for that quarter because I had to get busy and do these other things. So after three and a half years, I had flunked out. And I was, had no one, no adult in my life at that time that I felt that I could turn to. And I'm not sure what if, if there had been someone. And my mom's thinking was progressed to the point where I was, there was no way for me to turn to her. And my dad was so depressed, I couldn't turn to him. And my grandmother was too sick. And my sister was so mad at me, I wasn't about to turn to her. I know that today. And I know that it played a role in, in the way I chose to do things then. Um, meanwhile, at one of these parties, I heard this rotty noise coming from the back room. Terrible four-letter words. Now, in those days, we didn't use those four-letter words very much. Today, no big deal. But back then, I didn't even know what some of them meant to tell you the truth. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have told you that. But I really didn't. I was pretty naive. And boy, I, was, I went back and I looked at this. And here was this cute little guy. Kind of looked just like Mickey Rooney. And he was smashing the hostess's glasses, breaking them against her refrigerator. And saying these four-letter words. Now, in all the drinking that I had in my home, there was never violence of any kind. Um, even really verbal violence. Mom just got really drunk and disgusting, and we kept it a secret, and we didn't let her get by the phone, and we guarded her and kept her in her corner. Uh, she was little. She was only four foot ten. It was real easy to keep her a secret. 
you know, we searched the house for bottles and all those things, but we didn't. We could keep her a secret. She'd mind us pretty well. But this was different. Well, I stood there, and I can remember, I can picture the scene. I, I asked the fellow I was with who that was, and he told me it's Cliff Roach, and he always does that kind of thing when he drinks. And I married him. Now, I want to tell you, though, that he's one of the funniest people I ever met in my life. And I told you I was raised with lots of humor and lots of fun and laughter. And he's funny. You'll see if you stick around and hear him tonight, you're going to hear him. He's funny. And I liked funny. Um... I uh, did see him in a little better state than that before I decided I was gonna, not going to let him get too far away. He also, you got to know, I didn't have a purpose in life right then. I had slunk out. And in those days, it wasn't all that easy to get back in, I'll tell you. It was a lot different. And he, it became clear to me very early on that he needed me. Well, for one thing, he told me he did. We started just having a wonderful time together. God, we had a lot of fun. And uh, his, it was evident from the beginning that he had a drinking problem. And, and I'm not one of those people in Alabama that tells you that she gradually, as the years unfolded, I began saying, hmm, this fellow seems to be drinking too much. No way. It was no surprise to me. Uh, we couldn't keep him a secret. Let's put it that way. And again, if you've heard him before, if you hear him tonight, you'll know what I mean. And you see, I thought that I knew how to help an alcoholic or a person who drank too much because one of the things that had happened to me, one of the things I learned wrongly, was that I was able to help my mother with her drinking because she would, that would happen that way. And my dad would call me in from college, say, can you come out the house for a while? Your mom's drinking really badly again, and you're the only person she'll listen to, which was pretty true about a lot of things. So I would go out and I would talk to her, and she would listen to me, and she would stop drinking. It wasn't until I got to Elanon that I learned that there's such a thing as a periodic alcoholic. And, you know, she's going to stop anyway. At least, and, you know, it's like I just would, often enough, I'd be there to feel like that was me doing that. One time I was up in Reno, and it just occurred to me like a flash that that's what alcoholics are like, slot machines. They pay off just often enough, you know, to keep us coming back. <laughs> you just get that adrenaline feeling. So I learned that, I thought, and I talked to Cliff about that, and, and we held hands over a little cocktail table, and we both remember this. I think I remember better than he does, but, you know, he gets fuzzy. Um, at Kelly's bar, for any of you who've been there, we talked about his drinking and whether that was going to get in the way of our having any kind of a future. And, but we decided it was my background experience that I could help him with that. And I'm not kidding you. We really decided that, that I was the one to help him. He also told me that he drank because he had such a terrible childhood and his mother was such a terrible drunk, and she was. And he suffered through a great deal of things that I never even knew existed in the world. Terrible terrible stuff and my god my heart went out to him and I knew that I could fulfill that job and I became his mother and everybody told me that's what he needed and if someone could just love him enough then he wouldn't have to drink well what that evolved into was not just not drinking but also not getting angry and for me that's the role that I took it wasn't so much controlling his drinking that certainly was part of it as controlling his anger because he would say to me if I just didn't get so mad I wouldn't have to drink so much or we'd have to drink. He never said not at all, but, you know, he wouldn't have to get drunk. So I would start controlling all the things I could to keep peace at any price. And this is not a new story to hear from any Al-Anon, is it? I mean, most of us have experienced that somehow. And uh, and so that's what my uh, my whole life became. And I laughingly used to say that I didn't have to graduate from college. I simply married my final paper. You know, I'm still writing it. I was majoring in psychology. I always hate to tell you that, but I'll be truthful here. Some of the things I did to control his drinking or his anger. For one thing, he was a Roman Catholic, a Catholic Irish alcoholic. That's a member of the CIA. And when you're raised in a little Protestant setting like I was, with a little, just everything just kind of in a ho-hum, that's culture shock. And, I mean, his family were from Bakersfield, and they drank at everything. I mean, they drank at weddings and funerals and, and baptisms, and, and if somebody had an automobile accident, somebody all, everybody came over with the booze, and, and uh, it didn't matter. It was always a celebration, and we didn't do that in our house. So um, I was really kind of looking at all this crowd, and I, but I did, he hadn't been a member of his church when we got married. He had rejected that. Well, we've been married quite a while, and, um, and in his pain, in his own searching, he decided to go back to his church and see if that would help him. And you know, he got better. He got easier to get along with. He wasn't as angry. He was 
um, able to pay some attention to my needs, so to speak. I mean, he could hear me. He cared about what was going on for, with me. And I liked that. So I thought, hmm, I kind of like him being in this church. And so I joined it because I wanted to keep him around. That, well, we didn't keep him sober, but we have five children. Uh, you see, I've been raised ways to follow the rules. And uh, I didn't know you could break rules. I followed the rules in my town, and I followed the rules, and also I followed the rules. Today, I'm so grateful for that. I just love those kids. We have five wonderful grown children, and they are something special, I'll tell you. And when I look back, and like somebody said earlier, wonder, look at that and wonder how they survived me. I think I heard that over at the LME this morning. I, it amazes me. just amazes me. And on my 60th birthday last month, everybody had a party for me, and those kids were there except the one that's up in the state of Washington. And they did some very loving things and said some loving things, and... Um, I'm glad I had those five kids. But there were a lot of times when that was my trap, those five kids. Because I'd been a high-functioning person who could always... I would go in and apply for a job. I didn't have any idea how to do the job. I told them I did, and I would do the work. And by the time they got around to checking me out again, I figured out how to do it. And I could just fool you with my footwork. And uh, and I was trapped with these kids. Um, as I said, I loved them. Well, one of the problems we had was lack of money. Now, I had somehow decided it was wise for me to take over the financial picture in our household because he didn't always show the best decision-making. <laughs> well, he needed to drink. Well, you know, I, I was in, uh, in charge. Um, it was okay with Cliff. He always brought a paycheck home. He never lost his job. I said he was a school teacher. He uh, never lost his job, and I felt like that must be... If he was somebody who was bringing me a paycheck and giving it to me every month, and I was putting it in the bank, I owed him for that. Now, that's because I'd already earned a paycheck of some kind, and it was weird for me to just take that. The, the other thing was then I deserved to always manage the money and make it all balanced no matter what he did with it, and so I would become the keeper of the money, and he would take a little allowance. By the end of the month, he would run out, and then he would come to me, and I would get to make the decision. Okay. And he would say, how about a dollar and a quarter to buy a half pound of vodka out of the basket at Swishy Drugstore? And I would make the decision. The decision it was always the same. He always got this dollar and a quarter. But what changed was whatever sort of dance he had to do first. And it may be, I'll check. Um, I had some money saved back because David wants to be on the team this year and he needs a softball net, but maybe he could just wait. Um, now, any Al-Anon out there who knows your salt is hearing these field trips, I hope. You have to do that to get here. Um, the thing is that while I was putting the guilt trips on him before he got a damn dollar and a quarter and made him feel bad enough, which he didn't, didn't by the way. You know, he really didn't, wasn't always been interested in whether they would play baseball by that time. But he would, you know, I would do what I could with that. I didn't realize how, how much I was chipping away at my own self-esteem when I acted that way. I was interested in chipping away at his self-esteem and making him see himself that I didn't have any idea what I was doing to myself every time I set out to make him feel worse about himself. That's just one little example and we all know we've got hundreds of them. As I say, my story's pretty generic ho-hum. Didn't feel that way too much. What I began doing was um, earning some money, though, because I said, you know, I'd always done that. And I had learned to play the piano, and I had a little talent, so I set up a piano studio in my home. Now, that's no small chore. When you have five children who are acting strangely by this time, and a loud drunk. And, you know, piano studios are supposed to be dignified. So first I had to get a piano that was, and I... I got this little beat-up piano, and then I began making enough money to buy a better piano. And, and our house was set up in such a way that the front of the house was the living room, and I had the piano in there. And in the middle of the house was the kitchen and dining room area. And the back end of the house we built on a family room, and uh, that was a, a door came in the back. Well, the kids were starting to do their stuff out in the streets. Now, this is in the late 60s. I'm talking about the 60s. And some of the stuff they were doing was very strange, and it... Some of it, I, I said, it smelled funny, some of it. And uh, other times it didn't smell funny, but it came in funny little bottles, and I'd find these colorful pills 
all around. Um, I, hate, I hated the pills. I clicked through a lot of pills, too. And uh, I hated that. That was the hardest for me. That was the craziest behavior for me to figure out. I could do okay with pot and with the alcohol. But the pills always threw me, including the prescription stuff. And Mom got into that, too, and it really threw me. Um, what I was doing was, by the time I got to this program, I was giving 37 piano lessons a week. I want to tell you that I'm, I'm not your, your Al-Anon who was a rocker and a plucker. Do you know what those are? Those are where you sit in your rocking chair and you pluck the chenille off your robe. I don't identify with the rockers and the pluckers in our program. There are a lot of, of those people. Um, I was a window stand. I mean, I could stand. I could. I could go to sleep while standing straight up, watching out my front window, and get 10, 15 minutes nap in, like a horse does, you know, watching for that car. And I and I got real superstitious. I developed some ways to figure out if this next car was going to be his. And uh, if I ran out to the kitchen, got a drink of water. Checked all five kids and my mom who would come to live with us and uh, did something else over there. Then when I came back, he'd drive up. A little bit, you know, with children we call that magical thinking. Just, you're supposed to outgrow that a little bit as you get older. You're supposed to recognize that later, that that's not real. Um, but I developed these, these ways of figuring out that it's going to be okay if this and if that. And I got real crazy. Um, I told your mom would come to live with us. My daddy died. Sometimes in rooms like this, I say my dad died of alcoholism because you're going to know what I mean. Dad had had a heart attack. The first heart attack he had, the phone call came from my drunk mother to my drunk husband, who later that night said, oh, yes, by the way, your mother called. Now, we lived 500 miles away. We'd moved down to Oceanside by then. Your mother called, and something happened to your dad. I'm not sure what. I called the house, and Mom was drunk, and said, I don't know, they, they're just checking him, well, he's okay. The next morning, our family doctor from Los Gatos, who's uh, still there, I think, by the way, Dr. Ness, I think he's still down in that little spot, um, he called me, and he said, why aren't you here? My sister was in Puerto Rico, living there for a while, and I said, why would I be there? And he says, your dad's had a very serious heart attack, and somebody needs to be here. Well, then I got in the plane, and I'll never forget the feeling I had, because I didn't know where I belonged, and I hear this said over and over in Al-Anon. I didn't know where I belonged. I just had all these responsibilities and all these people depending on me, and I didn't know which place to be. And uh, Dr. Ness had said, you know, you need to be here. I had a drunk husband, drunk every night. I had five children, 12 years and younger. And I didn't know where I was scared to go away and leave. But I did. I made the decision. And flying in that airplane up to San Francisco, I'll, I felt so torn between the two places I should be. And when I got to the hospital, my dad was, uh, had one of those um, heart monitors, which in those days I had never seen one. I'm going back to the 60s now. And it scared me. And when he saw me, his heart it, it started jumping all over. And that scared me. And I went over there. And, and I thought he was excited and anxious because I was there. That must mean he was very sick. And he was scared because I had come. And I said something to him. And he said, why are you here? Why aren't you up with your mom? She's drinking. And you know, you know what I'm sure now, what I'm saying. That's all he could think of. And so that's what I did. And I went up that hill and I saw my mom with black eyes. She'd fallen real, real badly the night before. He had a heart attack. She looked terrible. Um, a couple of years later, he lived through that heart attack. He had another heart attack. And... Um, because my mom was drinking that night, she wasn't able to see how badly he needed help. And he lay on that bathroom floor for six hours without help until she was uh, connected enough to do something about that. And, and they took him to the hospital and he didn't live through that one. And so when I say he died of alcoholism, I'm only saying it not to blame anybody. It's just simply say the man didn't know how to live with an alcoholic in a way that would help him maybe not have a heart attack. He didn't know how to do that. And my mom's drinking was such that she couldn't anymore take care of him in any way that was going to help him. So she came to live with us. Cliff invited her. They always got along real well. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for that today because they really got along well. They're both funny. They both like a little drink. And uh, she always thought I made a real good choice. Uh, there were a couple of times when, when I was considering breaking up that marriage and she just didn't think so at all in fact when the time came when, when we did split up after 20 years because of the drinking 
The first thing she said when I sat down to tell her that that's what was happening, she said, oh, poor Cliff. <laughs> she didn't. And I'm just really grateful today. But um, and Mom had broken her hip. Now, nobody's real sure how that happened, including her. And um, she was only in her early 60s, 62, something like that. And um, she was on a walker, and the reason it didn't heal is because she did it, she did it the alcoholic way. She'd go in and get, I would, and I did it the Al-Anon way, pre-Al-Anon, untreated Al-Anon way. I would take her to the physical therapist. He would give her the exercises to do a graduation of the exercises. She would go home and do all 70 that day, and she couldn't walk for two weeks, you know. And then I'd take her back. We'd go through it again. I'd bring her home. She'd do all 70, and then she couldn't walk for two weeks, and I'd take her back. She was a little walker. She'd walk around the house on. And always smiling. Just about always smiling. She got shorter and shorter. And uh, always smiling. Well, she'd take her little walks around the block. Short little block. We lived in a little cul-de-sac there. And um, she would bring folks home. She was friendly. And uh, little old folks, you know. And uh, one man in particular, I remember, he always had wet pants. It was terrible. But he was nice. And Mom thought he might be lonely. And then after school, you see, Cliff would always arrive home after school with all his teacher friends that like to drink. And that would be happening after school. And if you're a piano teacher, you have to do that after school. Because after school is when you teach kids. So I was in my living room in my dignified piano studio. Well, in my middle of my house with my dining room and the kitchen area would be my mother and her little old friends with the wet pants. And Cliff and his teacher friends, and they were making margaritas. And margaritas are noisy, and I had three blenders go out because they get on there wrong, and that's noisy when they do that. And I, and in the back of the house, we had our oldest son by this time, and he was a real industrious kid, and he was Oceanside High School's leading hashish salesman. And, uh, and I was just upset about that, actually, because, you know, we needed the money, and, uh, <laughs> he never asked for much, you know, he didn't ask for an allowance or anything, and bought the other kids things when they needed them. He was real generous, and his dad hit him up all the time for fifth. And uh, now it's interesting because Cliff was, had no awareness of what was going on with those kids, the drugs or the all that stuff at that time. Uh, you know, now he does, of course, but at that time he just thought they were real weird. Which they were, but there was a little other explanation for that. But David would conduct his business out the back of the house. He also had a couple of daughters who were doing some things that I wouldn't have approved of, and that was, you know, they would make these strange connections with peculiar boys. And the boys would arrive in the bedroom windows along the side of the house and I wasn't real quick with that because I told them I couldn't have any people over you know while I was teaching I don't know I but I'll tell you I've developed some fantastic skills and I appreciate today what I went through for 20 years before I got to Illinois because I developed wonderful skills that really make me a few dollars today in the work I'm doing uh, the people where I work are amazed at how I can stand at one end of the building and I can tell you what every one of my staff members are doing and what they're doing wrong and what and whether or not what they're supposed to be and who didn't take care of what. It just says it. How can you know all this? And I just okay. you had to be there, you know. I got so many paid for that today, see? So it's wonderful. Best of both worlds. But I would be sitting in there giving my piano lessons and I could tell you the minute David made a sale out the back door and every time a window opened and closed and every margarita they were having in that kitchen and I was a busy lady. I heard an, an alcoholic, I remember an alcoholic story one time, and he thought he was telling about himself, but he was telling about me. He talks about a man who's driving down the freeway in a, in a pickup truck, a panel truck. And it's a one-ton truck. And uh, behind him is a hybrid patrolman. And about every mile, this man leaps out of his truck, and he takes a baseball bat, and he whacks on the side of the truck as hard as he can whack and he gets back in and drives away. And the highway patrolman got real fascinated because he kept doing this. And so he finally pulled him over. And he said, Well, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. I don't think it's illegal, but I'm so curious. What is it you're doing? And he says, Well, you see, I've got a one-ton truck here. And i got two tons of parakeets in the back end. And I have to keep one ton in the air at all times. <laughs> I think I was keeping one ton in the air at all times. And I said, Oh, God. I'm so glad. And you know, Eleanor's taught me to to just carry a ton of parakeets or half a ton or, or drive a two-ton truck or whatever, but I don't do that anymore. So I wasn't a rocker and a plucker. One of the things David did was take LSD, and that leaves uh, some interesting side effects. He would uh, see little flashing colored lights. But this time Cliff was drinking every night at home. He was trying to keep his job. I was trying to have him keep his job. I did a lot of things so he could keep his job. He'd been to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist had prescribed antibuse. 
he was willing to do some of that. Um, the psychiatrist had a heart attack and died, and I was really mad. And Cliff didn't go, but we needed the interviews because I developed this little plan. He took one on Monday morning, one on Tuesday morning, a half of one on Wednesday morning, he could successfully drink on Friday night. And that's what he wanted to do right then. He wanted to be able to get through the week and just drink on the weekend because he knew he couldn't stop. That was okay with me. At least I could figure something, I thought. The only thing is that I began noticing that he would start drinking on Wednesday and it didn't seem to bother him. So I began thinking, he's not taking his pills. So I found a way to see that he took his pills and I would pop them in his mouth on Monday morning and on Tuesday morning and half a while on Wednesday and he still would drink. Then I realized that he was swallowing the pills and I figured out that, you know, we had dogs all our life and, you know, you give them a pill and you stroke their throat and it was the most natural thing in the world for me to do. And so each morning I'd pop it in, say, have a good day, and I'd pull that out of Jappa, went up and down, and he'd go out, you know, and today he says, you know, he's glad I went to all that trouble, because he really didn't want to drink till Friday. He really didn't want to. So we could do it that way. He got, you know, he didn't like it at the time, but the other thing is he could never, he rarely could make it till Friday, and he would drink on Thursday a lot. Now, if you drink on Anabu, as some of you know, it, it isn't very good for you, and things he would turn red and blotchy, and he kind of glowed in the dark. And it became really common around our neighborhood for the kids to come over on Thursday nights to watch Mr. Roach glow. That's really what they used to say. They'd say, hey, does your dad kind of glows every once in a while? And they'd say, yeah, he's Thursday night, you know. And, of course, he could have died. Also, the doctor, one of the doctors gave him sleeping pills, and, and I was really grateful for that. Today, I realized that also could have killed him real easily, but I didn't know that then. We loved it because he passed out a little earlier and that kept us peaceful at home. But I remember a particular night when I was standing in our living room, and by this time Cliff was, I say, drinking every night at home because he was trying to protect his job. And he was um, not a real kind person to be around by then, differently, uh, but, you know, what can he say? He wasn't all there. Uh, he talks about the hate in that house. The children and I don't remember feeling hate. We certainly didn't feel hate towards each other. Sometimes, for a moment, you know, for a momentary uh, thing. Uh, the one daughter is probably remembers being the angriest, and that was we could see that too. Um, he talks about the hate in that house, and that's what it was like for him. We remember a lot of fear, but we also remember a lot of closeness among us because we would need to be close. We had to try to help each other through these things. And um, and so it's interesting how differently we remember the same scenes. But I remember the scene particularly looking at that bunch in the living room. Now, they all looked alike in the late 60s. I don't know about any of you who had kids. They were all hippies. And, I mean, they would wear white T-shirts that you couldn't tell the boys from the girls, you know. And all their hair was straight, parted in the middle and long. And they all had wire rim glasses on whether they needed them or not, which I always thought was so funny. And they had jeans on with holes in them and no shoes and headbands. And in my family, they wore great big teeth medals around their neck. Because one of our drunk friends who's now on the program used to work, do the ceramic work at the high school, and he had these huge teeth medals on a leather thong. And they all looked like that. I couldn't tell my kids from anybody else's kids. And so did my husband. A little older, but he looked the same way. See, he gets around to it tonight. He'll talk about some of the weird things he did during that period of time. And I was trying to have a dignified life. And they they get to meditating, these kids. They were studying something. And they all, and then, of course, if you have a lot of kids, you have a lot of other kids. I mean, the neighbor kids all lived at our house. I guess their houses were worse than our house. I don't know. And we had a lot of singing, a lot of piano. I played the piano a lot, and we sang a lot, and we had a lot of fun with that, a lot of parties. And the kids liked that. And we always had, and I, I learned to cook for a whole bunch of people. I just put huge casseroles in the oven and huge salads in the refrigerator. I gave my piano lessons, and whoever came in ate it. And they'd stick around a while. And besides, David had the best brand of pot in the neighborhood. So it was a good place to be, I guess. But I would look at all these people, and they would do their meditation. They'd go, oh, oh, and they'd sway on the couch. And I really, I'd look at they're all going to tip over because these things would... And, you know, it's just weird because when I would stand there, Cliff would be watching the TV and talking to it, but it wouldn't be on. And I, another thing I figured out, I figured out that he had about a 20-hour lifetime, 23 hours. He was answering or talking about what he'd seen on the TV the night before. And to let you know how well I was doing, I was beginning to participate in that with him. And we talked. Now, see, our oldest daughter really remembers this part. The kids had, you know, if you read books about alcoholic families, they like to label kids 
went to label us. They make money in labeling us and calling us things and writing books about us out there. And uh, we got them all in our family, and I think it's kind of fun sometimes to look at that. The oldest daughter was a, uh, she always ran around trying to get everybody to eat cookies. Because if we ate cookies, we'd be okay. And here'd be this room full of people. Flip's friends would stick around. We had one of his friends was an English teacher, and he watched read poetry to us. And, uh, and he'd read it all night. I learned later he had some funny little pills he was taking that kept him awake all night. Because we'd wake up in the morning, he, Bob would still be there. You know what Bob's doing today? We just learned he's up in, this is years ago, he's up in a small town in California working behind the desk of a motel. And he was a very successful English teacher at one time. I suspect he hasn't found AA yet. I don't know. We just found that out the other day. That's interesting. Um, and Bob would just read poetry all night. And uh, our youngest son, Chris, was a happy little kid. And he, he was a funny, he's very talented like his dad. He's also real musical. And he learned early on that if he could stand on a chair and, and imitate the great Irish tenor John McCormick, that made his daddy happy for a little while and he would do that. So a little toe-headed kid standing on a chair just sitting at the top of his lungs and he could do that and he would imitate John McCormick and he would do that all the time. And David was seeing his little flash of lights, of course, which started Cliff because he would jump and say, well, what's that? Because David said that and my mother, who was always cheerful and helpful, was on her little rocker. She'd say, well, I think I can explain it to you. And you know, when it's happening and you're... You, I said, saying something, and I'm not seeing it, I really. So our oldest daughter was feeding everybody, and our son was loaded. And our next daughter was mad. So she was 14 when we got here. And she was angry. She was the one who was the angriest. If you got too close to her, she'd say, get out of my way. And she'd sit there, man. And Chris was singing songs every night. And our daughter, Mary, who's the youngest, would be called the lost child, according to these old charts. Because she had a corner. We called it Mary's Corner. There's a town somewhere called Mary's Corner. We, everybody, our family who's ever driven by it, taken a picture of the signs of Mary's Corner. We arranged the furniture so the couch was always at our diagonal. So Mary had her corner. And Mary didn't make trouble. And Mary didn't make waves. And she did fine in school. She didn't do any big deals. So she didn't get in any trouble at all. And many, many times I'd get up in the morning and Mary would have slept in her corner all night. And I wouldn't have known that. Because I wasn't paying any attention to Mary. But she didn't do anything that brought my attention to her. Mary's 26 today. Mary's a very bright girl. And she's in a pre-med program. And she suffers from terrible depression. And she hooks herself up with very troubled men who need help. And because of that, she's taking forever to get her education. And because of that, She's always in financial trouble. She doesn't seem to manage her money well. And this girl is beautiful and bright and talented in all the things that you would think. But she doesn't know how to do life. She hasn't chosen to get any kind of help. And that's the most pain for me today. With all our little spots of pain, that's the hardest for me. Because that's me. And I see it over and over. But I'm back in that living room. And here he is looking at the TV and it's not on. He's talking to it and David's leaping around with the colored lights. I forgot to say he had a dog. And this is my, my favorite dog. He liked martinis. He got drunk. And he, but he was old. His name was Fiesta. And he had been hit by a car and had broken his pelvic bone. And he was, he couldn't, for a long, a long fur. And he couldn't uh, raise his rear end up in the backyard to do what he had to do in the backyard. So he had to help. And God knows no one else in that house was going to help him by that time. And uh, and he was an old dog and he had diarrhea. And I would stand in that living room and I would see this scene with Bob reading his poetry and Chris singing his songs and Jan sitting there telling everybody she's and, and Kitty trying to get us to eat cookies and David watching the flashing lights and my mother and her little friend wetting his pants and, and all these kids on the couch shaking, you know. And I think, God, what am I supposed to be doing with these people? And you know, the dog would bark and I knew what I was supposed to do. (laughs) And isn't that true? That's really all I was supposed to do. Just put the damn dog out. You know, just to tell you how I lost track of my choices by that time. Um, never occurred to me a couple days I'd go out and hold this dog up in the backyard. Then I'd drag him over and wash him off because he was a long-haired dog and he had diarrhea. Two things I could have done differently, you know. I could have cut all his fur off during that period of time. Um, didn't occur to me. I think I'd lost track of my choices a little. And also, I think for those of you 
who are also members of the Varsity Martyr Club, you're recognizing that how could I make it easy on myself? You see, I must continue to make it as difficult as possible. I had no conscious thoughts about this. You know that. I just, every, this is one of many little things. I just saw to it that I sacrificed at all times. I was in this program five years, and I was in a grocery store shopping. And I, my eyes went to the shelf containing mayonnaise and Miracle Whip salad dressing. And I shouted out loud in that store, I can have that if I want it. <laughs> yes, you see, and the lady standing behind me said, well, sure, honey, if you've got the money. <laughs> and there I lies an Alan on jail, because many years before, I like Miracle Whip salad dressing, so he the stuff, he likes mayo. So I had always kept two little jars in the refrigerator. I mean, that's kind of normal, I think. But one day, he accidentally made a sandwich with the wrong stuff, and he'd thrown it across the room and said, well, you even got this stuff in the house for And I went without it. Now, I'm sure the cliff didn't intend for me to go without Miracle of Salad dressing for 25 years. <laughs> but I did. And so, I bought that little, well, I got the little jar. I wasn't quite recovered enough to... And I went home, and I and he's sitting there reading the paper five years sober, and I said, I can eat this stuff. And he said, well, I'll get you a real big jar, if that's all it takes to make you happy. That's a fabulous notion. So, you know, these are the things I lost track of my choices, and I had to be a martyr. And uh, it was as big a surprise to him to find out all the sacrifices I'd made for him. I um, I used to, we lived close to Tijuana, and um, I wanted to have that Aggies after that doctor died. So I would get in my suburban station wagon with my two-piece polyester pants suit and my bubble hairdo and a baby in the front seat, and I would go to Tijuana, and I would buy a piñata, which is a good excuse to go to Tijuana. And instead of stuffing it with candy, I would buy antibus across the counter and stuff the piñata with antibus. And then I would drive back at the border thinking, this time they're going to catch me and I'm going to be arrested and go to federal prison and then he'll know <laughs> then he'll know now you can imagine how interested they were in me you know I was as square as they come and I was buying a piñata and he didn't appreciate that one night one child looked too frightened one more time um it wasn't anything different or bigger or awful than it had been before. This one more time I saw a child with fear in his eyes and that was my bottom. And I can't explain it anyway but to say and I hear many alcoholics say that they don't understand why their drink the last drink was their last drink. It wasn't particularly anything spectacular. One more time I couldn't stand to see fear in a child's face. I had not grown grown up with fear. And I had watched my children do that and I had allowed it and so I invited Cliff to leave and he did for those of you that come up afterwards and say to me how you get him to move out I don't know just lucky you know it always happens uh, that was when I realized began really realizing how sick I'd gotten because my stomach ache went away I found that when my children would come in from school first thing was something to tell me or something had gone wrong I didn't push them into the back room and get them to tell me real quietly so it wouldn't cause any trouble in that house I just listened to him right there, and I began recognizing all the ways I'd compromised my own principles over and over and over for the sake of peace at any price, for the greater good, for the greater good of having a, an intact home. And, of course, because all those years, I kept thinking, somewhere in there is that person I married. Somewhere in there is the other, the, person, the part of the person I married. I knew a lot about his troubles when I married him, but I also knew the fun-loving side, and... It just had to still be there, and that's the slot, the slot machine. But the slot machine kept quick pan off, and um, that's when I knew. I also, I didn't know how I was going to take care of those kids. I couldn't do it on piano lessons, and I had my mother there. But I didn't worry about it, and I know that God was taking care of me right then. Cliff went to AA, and he got sober. He'd been in and out of AA for five years, so what? I didn't believe that any more than I had anything else he'd done. I'd never gone to Al-Anon. He moved back home after some weeks. We're not sure how long. We don't remember that too well. Not because I wanted him back home, but because I felt like I had no right to keep him out. He's gotten a sponsor. He was going to meetings every night. He was reading this funny blue book. And then this strange literature that said Alan on it began appearing in my house. 
and I thought that was for him too. And his um, sponsor invited me to go down on that dozens of times, and I said, well, I don't need to do that, Bill. I majored in psychology, and I didn't do anything anyway. I didn't do the drinking. But Bill's a wise man, and uh, that was in January that Cliff got sober. And um, just before St. Patrick's Day of 1970, Bill said to me, I poked my nose in an Allen on me the other night down there in Oceanside, and you know, I think they could use your help. <laughs> wise man. And he remembers that, and I remember that. And I said, oh, well, maybe I can manage. So I came to Al-Anon, and I have never gone away. And I've been, it'll be 19 years next March, 15 some years. Thank you. Now, what you taught me was I was learning even while I thought I was supposed to be teaching you. Because I was sitting in meetings being a, a, a snob. I mean, I'd flunked out of college, you know, but I was being a snob, an intellectual snob. And um, what happened a few months later was, I began realizing that my mother was going to want to drink again because she was periodic and we didn't have any booze in the house, but she was not going to be able to go forever like that. And I began talking about that kind of carefully with a few Al-Anons. And you gave me some other ways to deal with that. I had always responded to mother's approach to drinking in two ways. I scolded her or I pretended it was okay. Um, the time came when she did that. She said, you know, she pulled me into it. She said, we've been working hard all day. I remember this so clearly. She said, I think we ought to have a little drink tonight. Now, I didn't respond in the way I responded all those years. I simply said, Mom, the doctor told me that if you went on another binge, you might die, and I can't be part of that. She could have gotten her own booze. Instead, Mom chose to take her own life. Now, you know, I have to tell you my story. Um, and she did it there at home, and I, when I found her, I knew, I understood Today I understand it even better because I understand alcoholism better. That's the only solution she had because I had pulled her covers. I had released her with love and no more was I playing the game. No more was I scolding. I had released her with love and you gave me that gift. And I didn't even know I wanted that gift. I didn't even know you were giving me that gift. Until the moment came when I needed that gift and you gave it to me. And it came out, those words came out of my mouth. And... Um, when I called the paramedics and they were trying to do something, which we knew it was too late or I knew I was over myself, but I knew that I wasn't responsible. I knew that it wasn't my guilt. And I would not have known that a few months earlier. It was because I'd been coming to meetings and learning. And um, all the years we'd lived in that town and all the good, wonderful friends I had, I picked up the phone and I called an Al-Anon I'd only known for about a month. Is that interesting? And she came right over. And I knew that it was okay and I knew that mom was okay and I knew that I was okay what a gift to give me I also know that alcoholism is a deadly disease and it kills people in lots of ways it killed my dad it killed my mom and neither one of their death certificates said alcoholism but we know what that was all about the kids continued to do what they needed to do uh, over the last 18 years there have been a lot of more well, there have been more marriages than there are children and more divorces than there are children Sometimes the kinds of substances they've chosen to use have really scared us. There have been a bunch of abortions. Our first granddaughter died, and she was seven weeks old, and she looked just like my mother. And um, our grandson was born while we were in the mountains of Colorado, actually, sharing at a conference. And uh, they called us up there to say that, that she had her baby. And so we told the people that had invited us, and they said, oh, let's introduce the new grandparents. And so they introduced us at the big Friday night meeting. He said, we want you to meet the new grandparents. And everybody applauded, and while we're bowing, I said to Cliff, shall we tell them all that he's illegitimate? And Cliff goes, no, 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 because back then, he hadn't gone to any Al-Anon yet, you know. And that, that pair chose to get married about five years later because it worked out better for their health insurance, you know, whatever. You know. It's so wonderful. Uh, who in this world but us can stand in a room and see things like that? And no, you know, you're not going to judge me. I thought I was going to be judged by the world because of what the people in my life did. And I found out that Alan not only didn't judge me for what the other people in my life did, you didn't even judge me for what I did. And I got safer and safer and safer. And I began remembering what it was like to be happy and to take care of myself in this world. And I began feeling a bit capable again. And I began uh, doing the steps and 
And the hardest parts for me were the parts that had to do with the way I raised my children. Um, today we have two sober children. Our daughter that was so angry is a single mother, and she will have a year in January. And she's... And she knew what to do when she needed the help. And many a time, Alanon helped me decide on a daily basis where I belonged in her life. Whether this time I was going to take $100 over there, because there was a baby in that family, or this time I wasn't. And one of the gifts she gave me there was that I didn't have to decide today what I was going to do next week. If I decided I wanted to help her out today and maybe buy groceries, whatever it would be, it didn't mean I'd promised to do that for the rest of the time. You told me I didn't have to do that. I could decide on a daily basis where I belonged in anybody's life. And that whatever I chose to do that was right for me that day was going to be right for the people I love. And I believe that. Because even though what I chose to do with my mom was right for me, it was right for her. And I'm not responsible for what the people I love experience around that. I just have got to come from my best self, whatever that is, and whether it's gonna I'm gonna stay in my best self when I can stay with this program. I went through a terrible, terrible depression at five years. Didn't know it was a depression for three years. Thought it was physical. Back in those days there was a lot of um, criticism of program people, including Eleanor's who went for psychiatric help or went for for pills, including Eleanor and I also felt there must be something wrong with my program because I was so helpless and I was again back to a helpless person who couldn't make decisions and who slept all the time and cried all the time and was really thought it was physical. And it was enough years ago so that it took a while for anybody to diagnose that. When it was diagnosed, it was discovered that it was something called an endogenous depression. I don't say that here for everybody to come running around and running to their doctors and getting pills. I say it because I know there are people that also have something else wrong besides the disease of alcoholism. And in my case, I fought three years going for the kind of help that was going to get me out of what I had to do. And I finally, God knows why, I called a psychiatrist that I knew had been in practice with our private, with our family doctor who'd gone back to school and studied psychiatry. I didn't even know him very well. Walked in his office, told me my story. He sat me down and he said, I know what's wrong with you. And he did. And for a while, I took some medication based on what he said to do, and, and that's been a bunch of years ago, 10 or 11 or something like that, I, I don't even know, and uh, I have not had that trouble since. And I say that because I think it's important for me to tell you that I was thinking I was failing my program, I felt guilty, I was doing everything I could for the program for myself, and yet it wasn't working, and that's because even in the big book of AA, it tells us sometimes we need other kinds of help. I also wanted to go back to school and get that degree I hadn't gotten, and I couldn't seem to get the courage together, and I would pray for the courage. And I would pray for that character defect that kept me from doing that, no matter what. And uh, somebody said to me, you know, you've got to quit well, times you've got to quit praying for the courage and just get in the car, drive out to school and register. <laughs> you know, oh. Um, I had to do that when I had to ask Cliff for the car that day, and I had to spend $25 on a textbook, and I didn't think I could do that for myself. And, you know, those were the things getting in my way. I didn't know how to do things for myself. I did go back to school yeah, about the age of 50, I think, something like that. And I was older than the rest of the kids, but she was, of course, and older than most of the teachers. And it was kind of fun, and I finally, but I got, but I got that degree, and I ran out of money. Oh, I went ahead and got another degree after that because I just couldn't even stop. I mean, this was fun. And uh, what I'm saying all this for is that it was Al-Anon that did that with me. And my, it was Al-Anon. Because any time I start thinking I'm being selfish, I'm just doing this to fill my own needs. So what am I doing this for at my age? This is crazy. I always was given support by my Al-Anon sisters and brothers. To, if this is what you're supposed to be doing, then you're supposed to be doing it. At the very end, I'd run out of tuition. I'd borrowed all the student loans I could get my hands on. I wasn't working teaching piano anymore because I was busy going to school. And I was carrying 22 units at one point. And I was doing really well. And I loved it. I loved it. And I knew I belonged there. But I hadn't any more money. And that sister who had been angry at me for 50 years called me and said, we want to send you the rest of the tuition. How come? She sent me $2,000 out of the blue. And so when I graduated with, the, with my master, she came down and, and she came to that. And she hasn't been willing to do that much. And it was pretty nice. Um, she's got a lot of unhappiness in her life, and I don't, I'm not here to tell her story. I can't help her. But what a gift. The kids used to send me money for my books, and they were in college. Um, 
really, you know, it's something. Alan Owens wouldn't let me stop. When I was really in Alan, Alan talked that service for a minute because of what Louis did up here reading. It really made me think of it. Early on, I was asked to do some service work in San Diego County and involved the Alateens. They had never been organized. There was no coordinator. In fact, they didn't even have an intergroup then, and it was just getting going. They asked me if I would be the first San Diego County Alateen coordinator of all now. You know, that feels good. And I can organize, so I said, sure. Well, um, I did my thing, and I got all my strokes that I wanted out of that. My motives were lousy is what I'm saying to you. But what happened was that some of those Alateens were being molested at home. And I had not, I didn't know much about that stuff, and I didn't know what to do about that. And, and I'm going back 17 years ago, and a lot of people didn't know what to do about that. And I went to the pediatrician who had raised our children for, you know, and asked him what to do, and he said she's probably bringing it on herself. And the other girl whose dad was a sober member of AA, and this was happening, um, and I also went to a, a child psychologist in town who said she just got ready to move out anyway. Well, that's a lot of years ago. And I went and got things to read and I started finding out what to do because that was terrible and I knew that wasn't the answer. I didn't know what the answer was, but I knew that wasn't the answer. So over the years, I've always, I, I've kept in touch with that whole field of work. And what ended up happening is that as a result of doing some service work that I did to be a big shot, that I did not do out of the, because I'm wonderful, I learned some things that today give me what I have, which is I'm working in the field of child abuse and I work with infant families and I, I don't know how come I ended up here. I could sit in a room, a group full of uh, offenders, uh, men who've molested, and do what I have to do, my job with those people, and I can say to myself, what's a nice girl like you doing in this place? But you know what? I can separate the man from the action because I learned how to do that in Al-Anon. And I can do my work, and I don't have to judge the human being. That, and alcoholism, of course, overlaps into that a lot. I don't want to work in the field of alcoholism per se. It's not something I think I can do. But I need to be where I am because I know more about it than a lot of the other people are doing what I'm doing. And I can show that part of it many, many times when the others aren't seeing it. So I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I have a wonderful job as one of the directors at a child abuse treatment center. A wonderful job. I get to come to places like this and leave on Friday and say, see you later. And, you know, they don't pay attention to my hours. And I, and I told you, I get to boss all those people around and, gosh darn, you know, anyhow, and I'm going to like that. And you know what? I, I, I did all this because I was taking care of myself. Not because I had a wonderful goal, but because I was taking care of myself and many times with the wrong motive. I'm so grateful that I can't even express it most of the time. Um, it's hard for me to let you know how, how depressed and discouraged and helpless I felt during those years in Illinois in the beginning where I told you that. Because what you're seeing now is the kind of person I was most of my life. But not then. And... How can I be anything but grateful for that, that I had the support when I needed it? You know, there's a saying, uh, there's something from Ernest Hemingway that I like to say, and I like to end with this. He says that um, the world breaks all of us. But that some of us can become stronger in the broken places. And that's what Al-Anon's given me. Alcoholism broke me, and Al-Anon has made me stronger in the broken places. And I thank you for that.